Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we'll hear more about the ethics of this war as the English began facing the terrible truth of the concentration camps as they became known. It's midwinter, July 1901. We'll also hear how the commanding officer in Pretoria, General Maxwell, meets a petticoat commando member, Johanna van Warmelo, who, unknown to him, is carrying explosives during their meeting. There are awful resonances here with contemporary events. For example, Lord Kitchener writes in the London newspapers in 1901 that the Boer women and children are relatively healthy and well, and that the hygiene of the camps is at acceptable levels. Meanwhile, disease is killing hundreds and eventually thousands a month. Kitchener had written that the families in the camps had sufficient allowance and were all comfortable and happy. Emily Hobhouse the British humanitarian, had visited these camps and she wrote in her diary how Kitchener's claims were shocking because she knew that the people in the tented camps were all miserable and underfed, sick and dying. She realised that the British public were being sold lies. This brought her to an important decision. There was no way that Hophouse supported the Boers' political ambitions, those of remaining independent. But her report to the House Committee which was eventually made public in late June, was delivered purely on the belief that a reasonable government would respond to what was an obviously neutral description of how badly the camps were being run. Instead, she was fobbed off by the political establishment and it dawned on Emily Hophouse that her personal sympathy for the Boers was being confused with political support. It was no question of political sympathy, she wrote in a letter at this time. On that score, I always maintained a negative attitude. It was now she was to make a telling decision. Her approach of working with government to find a solution had led to nothing. Worse, she was now aware that the censorship imposed by the British Army in South Africa meant that the families in these camps were going to be facing an increasingly awful future through the frigid, half-felt winter. She was going to fight the government in their own backyard in London. The gloves were well and truly off. You may scoff at this. In Victorian tradition, she was trying to mobilise support for her cause before women had the vote. What she lacked in legal power, she made up, however, in motivation, focus and vigour. As she had left South Africa for England in May, one of the last things that etched forever in her memory was the scene of 600 women and children waiting at a station to be taken to the camps. They'd been waiting for days and had no water or sanitation. The food was insufficient. Their clothing was in tatters. Then she came across the elderly uncle and aunt of President Paul Kruger at Springfontein concentration camp. Despite the cold, the old lady was half naked. Emily took off her own petticoat and draped it over the woman. Some of the other women clung to Emily physically in the hope that what they regarded as the angel in their midst would somehow deliver them from their misery. Then finally she was present at a truly life-changing moment when she witnessed a child dying. The picture photographed in my mind can never fade, she wrote of her episode later. At the Springfontein camp, a woman called her to help save her child. She went to the camp commandant, Captain Gostling, but he said he had no medicine. Emily walked back to the makeshift tent, really just an old sail tied around poles. So Emily stood nearby and watched the child die. She wrote afterwards, The mother neither moved nor wept. It was her only child. Dry-eyed but deathly white, she sat there motionless, looking not at the child, but far, far away 
into the depths of grief beyond all tears. A friend stood behind her, who called upon heaven to witness this tragedy, and others crouching on the ground around her wept freely. That scene was seared into Emily's memory forever. The leading elements in the great tragedy working itself out in your country seem to have gathered under that old bit of sailcloth whose tattered sides hardly kept off sun, wind or rain. I guess it's at this point where we must make decisions about right or wrong. How easy would it have been for this upper-class Englishwoman to have returned to her home country and quietly tried to forget South Africa and this war? You can no longer be an individual. You are one of a herd, and that herd preserves itself by the reversal of the principle of virtue, she wrote. Untruth, lies, hatred, inhumanity, destructiveness, treachery, contempt, illegality of every kind flourish and become, as it were, the virtues of war. It becomes a moral miasma, whether this war or any other. How far do you go to win? What will you do to your enemy? if they continue to fight past the period you consider honourable. We've heard in the previous podcasts about how Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman used the phrase methods of barbarism and was moved by Emily Hobhouse's descriptions. But he lost the debate in Parliament against the war, as we've also heard. Barbarism would just have to continue, even if it was sold to the electorate as a necessary barbarism. Herbert Lewis, a Liberal Party MP, declared prophetically, I would venture to say, looking at these 40,000 children in the camps, that we are only sowing the seeds of discontent, and that we may reap a terrible harvest some day, not perhaps this year or the next, but in time coming, a nation will grow up which will remember all these iniquities. War Secretary Broderick was in a bit of a pickle. So he did what he could to deflect Hobhouse. First, Broderick presented Lord Kitchener's version of conditions as fact, including a notion that most of the refugees were black. This racist implication would be shocking today, but remember, in 1901, the entire premise by empire builders was based on the perception of the superiority of the English, and everyone else were basically lesser humans. Boers were white, that was another matter. But the grave situation on the ground was that both blacks and whites were dying in large numbers. Hobhouse had provided the government with a moment to deal with this reality. The problem for governments that don't act when it's clear that their unhygienic camp systems are faulty is that one day the government is no longer in power. That's when retroactive accountability is enforced, and this can be very nasty indeed. By mid-July 1901, the British government was forced to admit that there were a huge number of whites and blacks in camps, totaling 64,000 at least. The number was incorrect but big enough to shock the political centre. A member of the Guild of Loyal Women of South Africa, Mrs. K.H.R. Stewart, then attacked Hobhouse in a piece she wrote for The Times. Boer women themselves, she said, would testify that their houses are full of snakes and flies. In fact, wrote Mrs. Stewart, Boer families frequently camped at the seaside and then would all live together quite comfortably in these same flimsy cotton tents. Yes, said Mrs. Stewart, it was the Boer women themselves who forced their poor children to live in such unhygienic conditions. Mrs. Stewart condemned Ms. Hobhouse for tainting the names of the brave British soldiers. Hard to argue against this when the ships docked weekly in Southampton, carrying the British sick and wounded from South Africa. Emily responded by saying, 
Mrs. Stewart, I understand, is in England collecting money to put gravestones over victims of the war. Hers is a sacred task. She cares for the dead. I care for the living. As Elsa B. Britt writes in her wonderful book, Emily Hobhouse, more and more people snubbed Emily and ostracized her in the London drawing rooms, the gathering places of the upper-class society to which she was so accustomed. She embarked on a speaking tour, addressing 26 public meetings in four weeks across England to inform more people about the true state of affairs in South Africa. By the 18th of July, Emily met Broderick a second time, only to be told that the government would not accept her services for further camp visits. He then told her that her actions had prolonged the war, which is a remarkable lie. Broderick told Hophouse he'd come up with an alternative plan. A week later, Broderick announced a commission made up of other women who would be sent to South Africa or were from South Africa, and they would join together and investigate conditions in the camps. We are sending out no one specifically identified with any form of opinion, he said in a clearly barbed reference to Hobhouse and her supposed pro-Boer sympathies. The commission would be headed by Millicent Garrett Fawcett. She was a prominent advocate for limited suffrage for women, but refused to entertain universal suffrage. Once again, selecting a person for political gain is an old trick in world leadership. Look around today. Unfortunately, even hardline conservatives would have been somewhat aware that Garrett Fawcett had written in a recent book that Boer women and children often accompanied their men on commando and would then arrive at the concentration camps all worn out and already starving. She intimated that they deserved what they were getting. She was hardly a neutral voice as the leader of the commission. Of course, the Boer women and children, as we've heard in our series, were quite capable of living by themselves in the felt, where all could shoot game and were quite healthy gathering foods of the prairie, so to speak. It was when they were thrown into large camps with groups of other women and children, and then provided with dirty water and zero toilet facilities, that they began to die of disease. The other members of the commission were Dr. Jane Waterson, who was the daughter of a British general, Lady Alice Knox, the wife of General William Knox, who was serving in South Africa, Catherine Brereton, who was a nurse at the Imperial Yeomanry Hospital at Dealfontein in South Africa, Lucy Dean, an expert in social welfare and sanitary services, and Dr. Ella Scarlett, a medical doctor. What these women all had in common was the conviction that the war against the two Boer republics was justified and that certain unpleasant measures aimed at the civilian population were condonable. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, what are condonable measures against civilians in a war? Emily Hobhouse was bitter. She knew that the so-called commission was going to whitewash the concentration camps. Cape politician John X. Merriman was a little more direct. He wrote to the government that he could not express his shock at the appointment of Dr. Jane Waterson too strongly because he said, of her utter unfitness for the task of forming an unprejudiced opinion of the camps. The reason he found her unpalatable was also obvious. She was a British colonial living in South Africa and wrote a letter in the Cape Times stating that, We ordinary colonial women who have been through the stress and strain of the last two years are not very favorably impressed by the hysterical whining going on in England. The war has been remarkable for two things. First, the small regard that the Boers have for their womankind. And secondly, the great care and consideration the victors have had for the same, very often, ungrateful women. Ella Scarlett, one of the commission's doctors, wrote a letter to the war office saying, 
The refugees are ungrateful, dirty beyond description, and never speak the truth. They have heard something of the pro-Boer agitation at home and try to be impertinent. Another somewhat pointed remark from a commissioner. We will hear how this group of colonial-minded British Empire-supporting women chugged around South Africa in their special train during August 1901, visiting seven concentration camps. Would they merely rubber-stamp the existing propaganda or not? We'll have to wait and see. In Pretoria, meanwhile, Johanna van Warmelo had wrapped up her month working in Irene concentration camp as a nurse through June 1901 and was back at the family home called Sunnyside in Pretoria. Remember, she was also employed as a Boer spy along with her mother and at the same time keeping three diaries. She'd fallen in love with a man she'd met before the war in Holland and her racy descriptions of their affair were utterly imaginary. What was not imagined was what happened to her on the 18th of July, 1901. The day before, on the 17th, two Boer spies had arrived in the capital, secretly of course. They were staying with Mrs. Hendrina Joubert and sent a note that they wished to meet with a Van Warmelo woman. So, early in the morning of the 18th, Mrs. Van Warmelo and Johanna met the two spies, Captain J.J. Nordier and his private secretary by the name of Mr. Greiling. The men had reports that they wanted the woman to forward secretly to Paul Kruger in the Netherlands. Nordier and Greiling had another request, which was far more dangerous. They needed one of the women to pick up a sample of dynamite which had been smuggled to Pretoria from Delagoa Bay, modern-day Maputo in Mozambique. Of course, Johanna volunteered for the mission and took off on a bicycle to a secret venue in Pretoria. On the way there, she veered in different directions and eventually was sure that no one was on her trail. At the destination, a brown paper envelope and a note about how to mix dynamite was handed to her. In the envelope was a bottle of yellowish powder, which was supposedly a medicine for colic. There was also a pot of paste that was supposedly a salve for chapped hands. It was midwinter, after all, and winters on the Highfelt are extremely cold and extremely dry. One requires salve to cope with chillblains, you know. Mixed together in the correct amounts, however, these two substances would make half a kilogram of dynamite. Johanna carefully hitched the envelope containing the salve and the powder under her skirt, climbed back on her bicycle and began to make her way back across Church Square to Mrs. Joubert's house when she had what would appear to be a somewhat crazy idea. She had been trying to get permission for weeks to visit other concentration camps around the Transvaal and General Maxwell, the commander, the governor of the Pretoria garrison, had been mulling her request. Johanna was very persuasive and the British thought she was a bit ditzy but rather harmless. Hardly an accurate reading of this intelligent Boer spy. Why she would though choose this moment carrying dynamite to chance a visit into the heart of the British army in Pretoria is anyone's guess. She duly arrived at General Maxwell's office in Church Square and it so happened that the German consul was in his office holding a closed meeting. Johanna takes up the story. When I was at last shown in his lordship was anything but in good humour. He shook hands and greeted me with a curt, Well, what is the matter with you now? That is very unkind of you, General, I answered. Why? he demanded. Oh, that sounds as if I trouble you every day. Well, what can I do for you? That's better, I answered cheerfully, and straight away plunged into business. He gave me permission to go with Mrs. Stevens as chaperone to any of the camps except those in the north of Potchefstroom. So it was then that the Boer Petticoat Commando spy managed to secure visits to the closed-off concentration camps while hiding half a kilogram of dynamite up her skirt. 
But the conversation became a little more pointed. I said I was willing to run all sorts of risks, and he made some remark about a charge of dynamite under the train not being exactly pleasant. Johanna must have wondered for a moment if she'd been rumbled, sitting there with explosives hidden in her underwear, a Boer spy who looked like a harmless young girl. Johanna quickly took her leave, climbed back onto her bicycle, and rode to Mrs. Jobert's house where she dropped off the dynamite. J.J. Nordier and Mr. Kreiling picked up the parcel that night with a message for Johanna. There would be more trips required in the future to pick up dynamite. While the Boer spies continued to deliver their messages to Kruger secretly, the British had actually broken the code used in formal messages through their Netherlands contacts in Pretoria. Last week, we heard how this meant the British could finally read the official Boer letters between Kruger and Stain of the Free State and the generals. They weren't privy to Johanna and her mother's hidden notes, but they were now able to read the formal government letters between the leaders, and that was a blow for the Boers. The papers confirmed that the Transvaal Boers were in dire straits financially, but also that President Steyn was determined to keep fighting. Upon hearing this, Lord Kitchener noted that his strategy of building blockhouses across the felt and then dividing the regions up, followed by huge columns of soldiers clearing the felt of farmers, wives and children, appeared to be working. But as we know, it was costing the British government over one and a quarter million pounds a week. Kitchener was under increasing pressure. But he pushed back, saying that while he led an army of 250,000 men in South Africa, only 156,000 of these were active and the number able to pursue the enemy at one time was actually around 80,000. Considering he was facing a Boer guerrilla army of not more than 15,000 at this point, it's still more than enough military firepower to deal with the Boers, who were also now short of everything, ammunition, food, clothing. These commandos regularly raided the railway lines and blew up trains. They also dynamited Mordefontein gold mine near Johannesburg on the 8th of July. After this incident, all mines were protected. Attacks on the railway lines began slowing too around this period as blockhouses and their building accelerated. Meanwhile, Generals Kurs de la Rey and Jan Smuts were back in the western Transvaal where they let it be known they were looking for a few good men for an invasion into the Cape. This had been shelved the previous year, but now Kruger had given his blessing for a final push into the heart of the British-controlled colony. He wanted to see if the Cape Afrikaners, who'd stayed on the sidelines for most of the war, would rebel. This unit consisted of only 350 men, but they were hand-picked and well-equipped. On the 15th of July, this group, under the command of two gifted generals, set out in smaller groups and eventually to rendezvous behind the Vaal River, travelling south. All the organising, though, and planning did not go unnoticed. Lord Kitchener was informed of Smuts and his commando, and he was to try and trap the wily Boer general near Clackstorp Railway. But that's a story for August. And waiting for signs of an invasion was Donate Sereitz, who was also travelling south towards the Cape border. We'll rejoin him next week and hear more about his exploits, which include a close call with bandits. Thanks to Samuel in the US, who's helped pay for our SoundCloud account. Thank you for the words of encouragement as well. I really do owe you a debt of gratitude. Thanks, Sam. And also, there's been a sudden increase in listenership in Japan as well as Indonesia in the last week. So to those fans of the podcast, thank you for coming on board and supporting me so warmly. If you want to contact me, please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. The email address is there. Or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week. Goodbye. <laughs>
En zonder gedaan langs die moeierdienste waal het sê vroorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.